Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and today my guest is Paul France. I had the opportunity to chat with Paul back in 2021, and he is joining me again to chat about his most recent book, Making Teaching Sustainable. So Paul is a National Board Certified Teacher, Literary Specialist, Keynote Speaker. He's also written Reclaiming Personalized Learning and Humanizing Distance Learning, and I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with him today. All right. Well, welcome. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. I know. So we spoke in 2021. I cannot believe it's already been two years. Uh, It's just time is like flying by for me. Um, So I'm familiar with your journey in education, but I'd love for you to give a quick overview for anybody who's listening who might have missed that first episode and then share any kind of updates on your work or your areas of focus since we spoke in 2021. Sure. So, um, I mean, I started in teaching, um, geez, like 15 years ago. <laughs> crazy. Um, and I was an elementary school teacher for 10 years. Um, I taught fourth and fifth grade. I moved to San Francisco and taught um, at a, an education technology startup company, a network of micro schools. So I opened a couple micro schools dedicated to personalized learning out there. And there I taught a bunch of multi-age classes. That's when I taught kindergarten uh, and first uh-huh. grade. And I taught actually a second through fifth grade multi-age class, which was very fun, but would not recommend. Um, no. <laughs> too big of a range, um, but it was fun. Um, and then I moved back to Chicago in 2017, and I taught third grade for three years and started to explore school leadership at the time at that time as well. And then I left the classroom in 2020. Um, I'm sure a lot of people can take a guess why I left in 2020. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, but no, I mean, to to make a long story short, I, I just didn't feel safe going back to school. And so I used it as an opportunity to to go out on my own. And, um, and since then, um, I've published a couple books and I do some consulting work and coaching work now. Um, and my latest book is called make teaching sustainable. And that really is just an exploration of what teachers think will make our profession more sustainable going forward. So emphasis on what teachers think it's not just what I think it's Mm -hmm. actually a synthesis of over 300 survey responses and over 40 hours of interviews from teachers and administrators all over the country. And I'm just really excited about the work. Yeah. Well, I have to tell everybody, when I talked to Paul a couple of years ago, we really focused on his book around how do we like humanize personalization, right? Which is something I think both Paul and I are really interested in. I'm sure you got a front row seat to that when you were working in your like micro schools, right? Using software to try to create those personalized pathways. And so often when I work with teachers, like one of my big concerns is just how often technology is used to isolate learners instead of bringing them together. And so during that podcast, you were sharing about the research. So you surveyed teachers and that was in 2021, right? It was like a kind of over the course of quite a chunk of that year. And you're asking about the aspects of this work that teachers feel is unsustainable, which I absolutely love that this is asking teachers because they feel like so often we don't actually include their voices in some of this stuff. And so I'm curious, like what inspired you to survey teachers? What led to your interest in this topic? I know that in addition to the survey, you interviewed all these educators, like 70 educators. So I'm curious what led to it, what inspired it? And then what were some of your key takeaways or um, key moments of learning during that process? Sure. Yeah. 
and I know you'll connect with a lot of this because for me, a lot of this comes back to learner agency and sharing, sharing the energy, sharing in the ener energy demands of learning with kids. Mm -hmm. Because when we do that, when we give them responsibility and we share in that with them, our jobs actually become more sustainable. And the, the beautiful thing, right, is it's good for kids, but it's mm -hmm. also good for teachers. And so what, what initially started this work was it was actually distance learning. And mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we had to do this really quick shift to uh, or transition to distance learning in March of 2020. And a lot of people were really struggling with it. A lot of teachers, a lot mm -hmm. of colleagues were. Some of that was definitely due to just the the technological demands, right? Not everyone is as techno technologically fluent as maybe you and I are, right? And mm -hmm. so for me, switching to Google Meet and, you know, using, um, what was it called then? Google Hangouts. Mm -hmm. and, you can <laughs> and like using all those tools, that was not challenging for me. It was kind of an, an easy transition because I was already doing, I was already using things like Seesaw in my classroom. Um, but what I noticed teachers doing as I would talk to them about um, like how they were transitioning to distance learning, I noticed they were trying to re replicate some of the same practices they were doing in their mm -hmm. classrooms online. And all of a sudden they're like, <laughs> they're not working. And, yep. you know, as I thought about it more, I was like, well, why aren't these things working? It's like, well, these things aren't working because they require teachers to be hovering over kids at all times. And Physical proximity. <laughs> totally, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that got me that got me thinking about sustainability, about how like that way of teaching actually isn't, it's actually not sustainable in the physical classroom when you're actually in person with all your kids. But it was especially, like it illuminated how unsustainable it was when, the, when, it, when teachers had to transition to like, you know, digital classrooms or online classrooms. Yeah, so that's yeah. what really started the idea for me. And then I started thinking about sustainable teaching in general and just all, all of the things, so many of the things that we do that we've been conditioned to do as teachers, because that was the way that we learned growing up, or that's the way we were told to teach. A lot of those things are unsustainable. A lot of those things suck time from teachers, suck time and energy, I should say, from teachers, but also aren't leading to deep, meaningful, transferable, fruitful learning. It's more about compliance to the, you know, traditional system. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I started, I started writing about sustainability just personally for me. Um, and then it kind of dawned upon me as I was, I was, I was starting this, the process of actually writing this book. I was like, wait a second, it doesn't actually make sense to just center my voice and my experiences in this conversation on sustainability, because what's sustainable for me might not be what's sustainable for you. And yep. I think there are some kind of universal truths with regard to sustainability, learner agency being one of them, that pretty universally, if you share the responsibility of learning with kids, then your job is going to become more sustainable. There's other things that, you know, I think are more subjective. And so it felt uh, it felt appropriate to to actually talk to people and understand where everyone's minds are at with regard to with regard to sustainability. So that's really how the whole project came about. And then I felt like I, <laughs> once I started talking to people, just opened up Pandora's box. Yeah, you know, I bet. I like, <laughs> we have a lot of feelings on this and we should, right? Because yeah. historically teachers have been um, marginalized professionally and in some cases mistreated. And some of the stories even surfaced like abuse teachers have experienced in schools. Oh, wow. And so it was, I think it's really important to, to start these conversations in schools. Like I don't think there's one right answer to sustainability, but we have to start the conversation and center that as a priority moving forward, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, if we want to retain 
people who are passionate about this work, then I don't understand how we're not having these conversations because so many of the teachers I interact with, they love students. They are in here in this work trying to kind of light those fires, get those light bulbs going off. And yet when you have one teacher with 30 students or one teacher with 160 students, when the teacher is doing the lion's share of all the tasks, one, to your point, it kind of robs students of this opportunity to develop their own confidence in their ability to do the different aspects of this work themselves. But it's just a math game. Like it's never going to be sustainable if we don't adopt more of a partnership mentality with our students and know that even if we're nervous right now, they don't have the skills to share the responsibility with, you know, for learning with us that that's our job then to help them cultivate those skills to gently and gradually release that responsibility over to them. So I love that this is your focus. And I can only imagine the range of lived experiences that you heard about. And, you know, just like we acknowledge that learner variability is the norm when we talk about students just being different and having different skills and preferences and interests and language proficiencies and backgrounds, the same goes for educators. So the idea there isn't like a one size fits all to, you know, sustainability for them either. Every teacher and every school and every situation is going to be a little bit different. So one of the things I was so excited about when I was reading your book was obviously you focus on six big kind of mindset shifts that emerged in the research that you kind of dig into. And for me, and I'm sure you experience this too, when I go into work with teachers, so often I'm brought in for work around a particular skill set. How do you design and facilitate learning with a specific blended learning model, say? But if we don't start addressing the mindset that leads to certain behaviors and decisions and lesson types and designs, I don't know that that workaround skill set really makes a huge difference for the majority of teachers. So I want to give you a chance to kind of talk us through those six minds, mindset shifts in your book, Making Teaching Sustainable. Um, the first one is humanity over industry. So I thought it could be kind of fun to start there and have you explain the fundamental shift you're describing, how educators can shift their focus to humanity in classrooms. Yeah. First of all, I think you're spot on, right? We have to we have to address the way we're thinking about teaching in order to shift practice. Mm -hmm. And that's partially because the thinking oftentimes comes before the doing, you know, mm -hmm. but it's also because we want teachers, administrators, we want everybody in teaching to be mindful practitioners, right? Yes. So mindful practitioners means being really intentional and in thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. Because I, I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. No one has all the answers, right? So we're dependent on teachers and administrators to think on their own to a certain extent. I hope Make Teaching Sustainable prompts discussions and uh, and serves as, you know, a provocation of sorts for mm -hmm. talking. And it provides a framework for talking about sustainability. But I hope no one buys a book thinking that they're going to have all the answers to sustainability. <laughs> It's supposed to start conversations so that people can make incremental shifts and work towards sustainability, because that is the most sustainable way to work on sustainability is incremental shifts, identifying what's within your locus of control. And so I hope that teachers will use teachers and administrators and coaches and superintendents, anyone who's involved in this work will use those six mindset shifts to then identify after addressing, you know, how are we thinking about teaching, use some of the recommended practices or just use the, the commentary on the mindset shift to start thinking about, well, what are my incremental shifts? What are my highest impact shifts I can make to work towards sustainability? Um, 
starting with humanity was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, partially for me, it's a, it's just like a, a morality thing. It's a, it's a, it's a value, right? Mm-hmm. We teach we teach humans. We partner with humans to create learning experiences. We don't, we're not the, we're not here to serve a system, right? We're here to enrich the lives, enrich our own lives through teaching and enrich the lives of kids through our teaching. Um, But there's also something to be said for when you center humanity, how it makes things more sustainable. Um, In order for teaching to become sustainable, we are reliant on our kids to engage with us, right? Mm -hmm. And some kids will engage with us from a compliance standpoint, right? There are some kids that will do that. And sometimes that creates a false sense of sustainability. Like I have some Mm -hmm. teachers who will say, well, my kids just love worksheets and they just love timed math tests and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I'm like, cool, okay. I I can't really refute that, right? But like, (laughs) if I'm thinking about, if when when I go into a classroom, you know, Mm -hmm. I want all kids to feel included and seen and valued and heard, right? Yeah. And so that means oftentimes placing an emphasis on the kids who are not currently feeling seen and valued and heard um, in the classroom, right? So in order to like get kids invested and get kids engaged, they have to see themselves. They have to see who they are in the classroom. They have to see how what they're learning is relevant to them as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. So that necessitates a conversation on how are we humanizing our instruction so that all kids can see themselves in the curriculum and see relevance in their lives, or at least, you know, even if it doesn't feel relevant, they see a purpose in it, you know, because for right. some kids, I will say, hey, you know what, you may never love to write like I like, I like I love to write. And that's okay, you don't have to love to write like I love to write. But I do want you to see that writing is a means for you to get some of the things you want out of life. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, as you grow up, you're going yep. to have to write, you're yes. going to have to, you know, and so like help helping kids make that connection, I think is important anyway. So that's why I started with the emphasis on humanity was because, you know, I feel like so much of education is dehumanized and that mm-hmm. has led to the unsustainability of our profession. Similar to, I mean, we can use climate change as, as sort of an analogy for all this, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason we're experiencing the climate crisis we're experiencing is because you know, we have centered industry over humanity. We have centered the exploitation of natural resources mm-hmm. for profit, right? And that has led us to this crisis where, you know, we're burning, literally burning through resources, heating up our planet and making so many places on our planet unsustainable for living. Well, the same things are happening in education. We've dehumanized it so much that we've forgotten that like kids, teachers, like human beings are the, are the, are the, people who energize our schools, right? And so we need to see their humanity first um, in order to, to have these conversations about sustainability. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that comparison to the climate crisis. I also have to just tell anybody listening to this, um, when you get into this book, Paul's done an amazing job of also helping you to create some I don't know how you how you put some norms around these discussions. So really, you get some beautiful direction around facilitating a book study and the conversations that would go with it around these topics, which I know I really appreciate because it's one thing to read a thought provoking text like this. And it's another to kind of guide a group of educators with lots of different experience and opinions through breaking down some of these really complex mindset shifts that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. One of my worries, honestly, as I was writing this was like, I don't want to be 
just like stirring the pot or just um <laughs> or just like creating creating a um creating a space where we you know unproductively complain right um, and i don't want to min- by saying that i don't want to minimize anyone's feelings right so in the book i do say like we need to acknowledge the full breadth of you know emotional expression right if you're angry be angry like if you're frustrated be frustrated and express that right because our emotions tell us things if you're sad like i get sad sometimes about this. so i get sad that we have to even have a discussion about humanizing teaching right mm-hmm. but there's a there's a line there right and it's it's one thing to express your feelings um to process them with a group of trusted colleagues and it's another thing to like endlessly complain with no solutions in mind and that's why i emphasize you know express those feelings in a way that's healthy and you know that is not um you know in any way harmful to anyone in the group but then also follow those emotions up with with change so for instance right anger anger is actually a it's a it's a boundary it's a boundary problem right mm-hmm. when you're angry it's because someone or something has crossed a boundary and it could be because could be a boundary that you've explicitly said i asked you not to cross this boundary and you did it anyway and that's anger or it could be i have a boundary and like so and so doesn't know about it and i need mm-hmm. to express that boundary so like if you're feeling angry about something at school that's unsustainable it's a boundary issue well what's the boundary have you expressed that boundary did and if you haven't expressed that boundary that's your next action step like Create yep. that boundary for yourself. Yep. One of the teachers, it's, it's, this is a quote in the book. One of the teachers said that she noticed once she got over 55 hours of work a week, she started to get really resentful. And so she set herself, she started tracking her time. And mm-hmm. she said, I'm going to do 55 hours, no more. And once I hit 55 hours, I'm just done for the week because I know I get angry. I get resentful and, mm-hmm. I, and I won't do that anymore. Um, and it really helped her. It helped her be really intentional about what she was using her time for. You know, I've only got 55 hours this week. Is it worth, you know, redoing my bulletin boards again? Mm-hmm. Or is it more worth, you know, spending time or, you know, what if I used my time in class to assess during the learning block that will yep. save me time outside of school, you know, exactly. so things like that. No, I love that. I love the point around we are humans. We're having an emotional experience in this world, in this life, in this profession, and we shouldn't deny those feelings. But there's a difference between recognizing them, giving yourself permission to feel them, but then finding ways to act on them and make the next steps or choices in a way that's productive and will hopefully start to have a positive impact on your experience, right? Which I think is what you're saying as opposed to, and I hear this a lot, where it's those folks who just kind of sit in the complaining and there isn't the action. And I know as a coach, sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm like nudging them out of that space because it doesn't feel productive, right? We want to move you toward positive action. Yeah. And I honestly don't think anyone actually wants to sit in that space. I think people just don't know what to do with it sometimes. Yeah. Or feel powerless to make change within the system, right? Totally. And it's, and that is very, that's another thing I came up, came up against was like, it is very seductive and very easy to just go, well, the system's broken, so there's nothing I can do. Right. It's like, well, if that was true, nothing <laughs> would ever change, right? And things mm-hmm. do change, sometimes just really incrementally, and sometimes it's grassroots. And sometimes change does come from the top down. The the mm-hmm. the, the reality is it can come from both sides, and it's really about finding the entry point and finding, you know, even just the smallest shift you can make. It is, it is possible. Yeah, I often say... 
we may not be able to change the system. And I'm like hard air quoting the system right now. Um, but we can absolutely change how we operate within that system. I think sometimes teachers forget how much agency and how much power they have within their realm of the work, right? In their classroom, how they go about this work to, to your point, make it more sustainable. Um, another one of the, the things I want to point out just about the design of the book that I thought was really interesting and clever was that throughout the book, you include these icons and they denote six of the central themes that really emerged in your research. So can you tell us about these themes and their connection to sustainable teaching and why you decided to kind of call them out at different points in the book? Well, I have to say, this was like, it was a really hard book to write. Um, when I initially started writing it, I had the six mindset shifts and I was trying to address every area of teaching within the six mindset shifts, right? Take humanity over industry, for instance, right? We could talk about humanizing the curriculum. We could talk about humanizing assessment. We could talk about humanizing classroom management. We could talk about, you know, mm -hmm. humanizing, um, did I say instruction already? We could talk about humanizing every aspect of the education system, but I would have had a like 200,000 word book if I would have done that. <laughs> I tried to find a way to pare it down. And so the hu the human the humanity chapter really focuses on identity work and the um, collectivism chapter really focuses on classroom culture and the empowerment chapter focuses on learner agency and the minimalism chapter focuses on um, you know instructional design. Process over product is about assessment and flexibility over fixedness is really about responsiveness. But you can apply those to any to any really area if you if you understand the mindset shift it's the mindset shift itself. Um, the themes I came to because they sort of tied everything together. There were certain things like like partnership was a huge one, right? Mm -hmm. We're so we are so conditioned in our society to be so individualistic, right? Because it's it's you know American capitalism built on or America the American system, right? But also the American economic system was built on self-interest, right? Mm. And this, this fierce sense of individualism. And you know what? In some ways that has served us and in some ways it hasn't, right? And so when we're overly individualistic in schools, I mean, from a personalized learning standpoint, you and I, I know, connect over this, what we end up getting is that isolation where kids mm -hmm. are all working on something by themselves, which actually isn't best for them in the long run because we want them to work together. For, through a sustainability lens, individualism doesn't work because it creates so much more work for teachers and it's just not best for kids too, right? What mm -hmm. actually is best for kids is for us to partner with them and share in those energy demands of learning so that kids are building more agency, kids are seeing they have power in this, but then also we're focusing, the teachers are focusing on the things that our kids really, really need us for. Mm -hmm. And so partnership shows up in the humanity mindset shift. It shows up in collectivist classroom cultures, uh, partnership shows up in empowering empowering classrooms, right? Where kids have agency. It shows up all over the place. And so the themes are really meant to connect the mindset shifts together because I think mm -hmm. as people read the book, what they'll realize is that mindset shifts themselves are not orthogonal. You know, there are all these connections between them. Mm -hmm. um, and so my hope was that the themes would sort of tie the mindset shifts together and help people see that these all sort of tug on one another. So if you go and start addressing process-driven assessment in your classroom, right, mm -hmm. you are going to be thinking about humanizing. You are going to be thinking about responsive instruction. You're going to be thinking about all these things kind of simultaneously. So that's really the function of, of the themes. 
That's very, I, yeah, I thought it was really interesting and very strategically done the way you pulled the stuff together and just highlighted those commonalities as you work through the book. And I, so there's two other mindset shifts I want to talk about. And it almost to me feels like it might be appropriate to talk about it together, which is like this minimalism, which so often I feel like in education, all teachers are faced with is somebody higher up dumping some additional thing onto their plate. Like, oh, in addition to all these, all of these content standards, which P.S. nobody could cover, even if you had your kids all day long, all year. <laughs> but in addition to those, we also want you to address social emotional learning. We also want with this curriculum and we want you to do this piece over here. And it's just so exhausting. It's like almost, I think one of the biggest barriers to any kind of change that I see when I work with teachers is I'm already so spread thin. I already don't have enough time to get everything done I'm being asked to do. There's no way I can take a step back and really reimagine my approach to this work, which is so incredibly frustrating for them because I think they know there are better ways to do it. So it's that one track of kind of minimalism when we think about instruction, but also I love and I spend so much of my own time trying to get teachers to focus on process over product and pulling kind of that, you know, things like process-based feedback and side-by-side assessments into the classroom where they can become these conversations between teacher and learner and actually function to build relationships. But I almost feel like it's so hard to do that process over product when right now, just the shift to a more minimal perspective on instruction is so challenging. If that makes sense, those two together are are really clear areas of interest for me personally. Just to clarify, are you saying they they almost sound like they conflict a little bit or they're hard to do? It's hard to do both. Is that what you're saying? No, it's almost like you have to adopt the minimalism piece first with your instruction, really getting intentional about instruction and your approach to then also be able to focus on the process more in the class. I'm curious, maybe I'm taking a totally different perspective on this. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I could totally see that, right? Because if your curriculum is so packed with things that you don't necessarily need to be doing, then you're going to feel like you have to get through the curriculum as opposed to focus on the process-based assessment, which actually makes sense based on my conversations with teachers, because I emphasize self-reflection so much with teachers. And I say, it's the thing we, it's the thing we let go of so easily. It's the thing we, we say, I don't have time for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it usually happens at the end of the learning block, you know, or like it's, we have so much to get through. That's, we have so much to cover. I hear that a lot. We have so much to get through. We have so much to cover. There isn't time for self-reflection. So I could see, um, I could see how, how you would, how you would think that, right. Because Mm -hmm. like in order to, to make sure we save time for self-reflection, we have to make sure that we're not trying to do too much within within a learning block. So that definitely makes sense to me. Right. That trap of like covering content at the sacrifice of actually the things we know are probably the most important in terms of our areas of focus in the classroom, I guess is what I'm talking about. All right. So I would love for you to kind of talk us through the the minimalism, the approach, that that kind of mindset shift, because I think it's a really important one for folks to be thinking about and talking about. Yeah, absolutely. At the heart of minimalism is intentionality, right? And folks who know me well know that I'm not really a big proponent of box curriculum. And it's not because necessarily it's 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 all bad. Mm-hmm. It's because of the mindset that it instills in teachers that like, I have to do all of this stuff, right? In this exact way. <laughs> in this exact way. And that's actually, it's it's something I'm working on with schools right now that I'm working with. And, you know, the principals are like, 
we don't need the teachers to do all of this. I don't, I'm not asking the teachers to do everything in each of these lessons. I'm offering this because partially because the district has said we need to offer this. So that's an example of where principals don't always have the, all the power that we think they do, right? Um, they're like, the district is asking us to use this. We have to use this in our classrooms. Let's give this a try. But I don't need teachers to follow it verbatim. For whatever reason, even though they keep hearing that that message over and over and over and over again, teachers feel like I'm not doing my job well if I'm not covering the entirety of the curriculum. It's like this scarcity mindset, you know? Mm -hmm. But really, minimalism is about being very intentional about what you're teaching, why you're teaching it, and how you're teaching it. Yep. Um, and so that's why in the book, I recommend things like using backward design, even if you're given a curriculum to use. Mm -hmm. I think backward design is an amazing tool for being a minimalist because it's it's like, what am I really trying to get to with this unit? Yeah. And I've got all these resources in here because they're, you know, and a lot of like I'm I'm looking at illustrative mathematics right now. And I actually think it's a pretty good curriculum overall. You know, mm -hmm. I would never follow it verbatim. You just don't have time. No. But there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good resources in there because the curriculum developers are probably thinking through like, well, if this happens, then I want to have this resource for the teachers. And if this happens, I want to have this resource, right? But yeah, it creates that 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 expectation in teachers, sometimes just self-imposed. I've got to get through all this stuff. So using backward design helps you be like, okay, this is what I'm actually trying to get to. What resources in the curriculum are going to help me get there? And then pick what what's going to help you. I think also then you can filter in other things that you've yep. used throughout your teaching career or other ways of facilitating that aren't necessarily, you know, laid out in the curriculum. Um, I also talk about finding concomitants between standards. So that's that's this idea that like the standards actually connect to one another. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, just because you're because I because my last full-time position was third grade, I often pull on third grade examples, but Area is a great area and perimeter are great examples, right? Mm -hmm. Area, just because you're when you're teaching area, you're actually teaching a lot of different things, right? You're actually teaching multiplication too. It's a really, really concrete example of how standards connect to one another. And so often we think of think of standards as like it's this box that I have to just check off. When right. in reality, if we take more of like a competency-based approach, right? And we think that there's we we think of standards more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um it actually, it actually is more minimalist because then it's, then you're thinking, okay, well, actually, while I'm teaching a task on area and perimeter, I'm actually teaching area, I'm teaching perimeter, I'm te teaching shape attributes, I'm teaching multiplication, I'm teaching addition. If you get really creative, you can even teach subtraction and division. You know, there's just, if you know the content really well and you see those connections, then it actually feels like you're teaching a lot mm -hmm. through just one thing. And that's really at the heart of minimalism for me. And I, I agree with you that it definitely impacts impacts the assessment piece. So like the process, being able to, um, you know, really lean into the process um, or process-driven assessment. Because if you are more minimalist mm -hmm. and you don't feel like you have to cover everything in a lesson, then you can be more intentional about carving time out to reflect with kids yeah. and help them actually tell you through their own words what they've what they've gotten out of that lesson or out of that day. Yeah. I want to double back. So I, I think that our, the message around, you know, I often think about these huge curriculums that teachers are handed, right. That they're 
teachers, as you are saying, feel all this pressure to do it kind of the right way, the way it's written in the teacher's edition. And yet I'm often of the mind, like, let's treat it as a buffet. And I am a huge fan of backward design. So I love this idea of if these are all buffet items, but we're really clear on this is these are the learning objectives. These are the goals of this lesson or sequence of lessons. And this is the these are the pieces we're going to pick and choose. I think treating those curriculums like a buffet and feeling that you have the agency and autonomy as a teacher to figure out what items from that buffet do specific students need. And P.S., maybe you're not using all the items with every student, but maybe you're selecting very intentionally for this group a series of items from your curriculum to kind of focus on. And for another group of learners, maybe it's a different series of skills or concepts that you're really spending time on. And I would love for teachers to have that level of intentionality and be able to bring that creative eye to their work designing learning experiences for students. And I think one of the things that teachers don't understand is that to be adopted by a state curriculum has to jump through so many hoops. There's so much they have to put in there simply to get a state adoption that that is why so many of them are just chock full of all this stuff we can never get to. And that's just one of those realities that if you haven't been a curriculum designer trying to push a program through a state adoption, you probably have no idea that that's why they're so jam packed full of all of this stuff. I, I did not know that. I oh, have yeah? to be with you. Like that's a, that's a new learning for me. Um, and it, but it makes a lot of sense when you say it that way. Um, I can't remember what exactly it was that you said, but something you said sparked this idea of, of universal design, right? Mm-hmm. And I know you're huge on universal design. And to me, that is that is a super sustainable way and a minimalist way to think about to think about instructional design, right? Mm-hmm. If we're designing if we're f- trying to find tools or tasks that appeal to everyone that that everyone has an entry point into that's ultimately more sustainable right and i in the book in make teaching sustainable i talk about open-ended tasks and how Mm -hmm. open-ended tasks are a more sustainable way to teach because i've been there where i've tried to personalize by creating a playlist of activities for every kid in the classroom right and it's right it's it's unsustainable it doesn't work in theory it sounds amazing right but it just it doesn't work and the and the costs of it outweigh the benefits but when we think of our classrooms in terms of universal design, like how can I design one thing or a smaller number of things that appeal to everybody in my class or that everybody can find an entry point into, it becomes more sustainable. And then again, you are counting on the kids to exercise their agency and make choices within those constraints and and you know engage in what you've de- designed universally. But it's to me that that feeds into minimalist instructional design to universal design. Yeah, it's interesting. So I train teachers all the time on the playlist model. And I think of all the blended learning models, it's definitely the one where you can get the the closest to that idea of personalization. But I think one of the things I've so appreciated about your work and that I think about when I talk about this with teachers is when I talk about personalizing learning with a playlist, I'm not saying that I somehow know at the beginning of this design work that I know what every kid needs. Instead, it's, you know, I'll create maybe three versions of a playlist. One that's more scaffolded, one that's kind of middle of the road, one that's more advanced and challenging. And they're ultimately just copies of the original that have been either modified with more scaffolds and supports and reteach or have fewer teacher check-ins if it's the advanced version. And maybe they're working toward a more complex product at the end of it. But where the personalization for me comes in 
that feels more sustainable is by entering kind of strategic teacher check-ins throughout the playlist at key moments where the goal is then for the learner to come and sit with the teacher they look through the formative assessment data, the work they've done so far, and have a conversation. Like, how is this going for you? What's working? Where are you feeling like you need more support? And then there are these like bars basically in the playlist where in that moment with learner, in a moment of partnership, we are deciding, do we need to add, make adjustments, remove anything from your specific playlist to ensure you continue making progress? And so this idea of like personalized pathways, it doesn't have to be that we know know at the beginning of this learning journey what every kid's pathway is going to be and how to customize it perfectly for them. I think that's where we want to build in spaces in our precious time together to sit with learners, have conversations, look at their work, ask them how they feel like they're doing so that we can constantly be kind of adjusting to their specific needs. I totally agree. And just to clarify, just for just to clarify for listeners, when I say playlist, what I mean is we were we were making a playlist for every single kid. Like it's wild. So- so individualized. It was just what you're describing, you know, feels way closer to universal design. And it feels like more so, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's more so you're like, you're tweaking, you're you're, make, you're, you're making smaller shifts than individualized yeah. projects for every single kid. No, or if they want to, if they're going to do their own kind of individualized project, then the responsibilities on them, like here's right. the project kind of guidelines, you have to now do a project proposal and then we're going to meet and we're going to talk about it. But like, again, every step of the way in that model really makes the student lean in and be that partner and do a lot of the heavy cognitive lift that in a lot of classrooms they're not necessarily being asked to do. And and then what, what ends up happening, right, is the teacher as facilitator is only there when the kid really needs the teacher there, right? right? And it's not that the teacher is carrying too much of the cognitive load. Right. And which this opens up a whole number another conversation about independent learning versus dependent learning, right? Mm-hmm. That when we take a more sustainable approach, we partner with kids um, in the process, right? Then we're actually building independence in them, which is which is good for them in the long run, right? We don't want kids that feel like they need their teachers there every step of the way. We only want them to come get us when like we can really add value. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm not adding value to my kids learning experiences when I'm there handholding, hovering over them, you know, walking them through every single step, which goes back to how we started this conversation, right? Like where that push for sustainability came from, which was that, you know, my noticing was that teachers were hovering too much and they were relying on on pedagogies that that required them to be next to the kids at all time and like telling them what the next step is all the way through. And what you're describing sounds sustainable because it is putting that onus on the kids to identify their next steps and um, and in some cases even create their own their own projects, which is which is amazing. Yeah. And I but I mean, I work with teachers all the time and I think what I hear is a Uh, like almost like a lack of trust in the students willingness to kind of drive their own learning, maybe a lack of confidence in the students ability. And for me, I think I just want us to take a step back and think about what is the purpose of education and school in general? It's not just to kind of jam their minds full of all this information. It's really trying to help them become these kind of creative thinkers, these problem solvers who can sit in spaces of productive struggle with their peers and not immediately throw their hands up in the air and say, I 
don't know how to do this. Right. And it's like it's this really delicate dance of starting to release control while also scaffolding this independent self-directed learning in a way where students feel confident they can navigate the learning task or they understand what their resources are if they get stuck, if they need more support beyond simply like throwing a hand up in the air and screaming our names. Right. <laughs> totally. And I was just I was actually just talking to another coach about this this morning that learner agents getting getting to what you and I are describing or reaching that mm-hmm. is challenging because the it's it's not something you can just go into a classroom and model right away right, right. it's something that has to be slowly built over time it, it and this is where i think the mindset shifts sort of connect together as well that um you know i'm thinking of the empowerment and the collectivism ones mm-hmm. right in order to have a collectivist classroom culture where all kids are you know playing a role in taking care of the classroom, mm-hmm. it's also be, need to feel empowered to make choices on their own, right? It needs to be something that that they have, they have a thought, they have an idea, and then they can go actually put it into action. Absolutely. Um, and so it's it's a hard thing to just because you meant you mentioned that sometimes teachers may not necessarily trust the kids to to take on those roles or that's a that's a barrier you've seen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um it really is like you have to you have to really value it. You have to really believe in it. You have to be willing to let it be a little messy at first. Mm-hmm. And then also you have to see through, I don't know, when, when you start building that culture where you're, where you're building agency, where you're teaching kids how to do these things at the outset, it doesn't look like there's a lot of agency in the classroom because you have to teach the kids how to do these things before you can gradually release it onto them. Yes. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. I was just in a training last week and I was guiding. So in my book, The Shift to Student-Led, which like just reading your book, I was like, ah, the mindset stuff in here is so powerful. I want everybody to read it. And then I want them to get into the physical practices of shifting responsibility from teacher to learner over so many of these tasks. But we were even just going through a discussion techniques choice board, really brainstorming, like what are all the barriers that might make it hard for students to engage in real-time whole group teacher facilitated discussion? Like there are just a myriad barriers. So what if we explore different options and give students a discussion techniques choice board? But I'm like, but before you can hand them this choice board with three or six different discussion techniques, first we have to establish why are we shifting to small group student-led discussion? And let's onboard them to each of the discussion techniques so they know what the purpose is, how to do it. Maybe we model it with a fishbowl in the middle of the room and then all the groups try it. Think about what went well, what they struggled with. Then we onboard them to the next technique and onboarding them to all six techniques could take two months at the beginning of the school year before they're ready to sit with a group and say, hey, as a group, which of these techniques do we want to use today to guide this discussion, right? So it's that gentle kind of here's the why, here's the how, here's the model, and let's discuss it and gently release it over to you to practice before you can make an informed decision about which of these techniques you actually think is the best one for you. Totally. This is making me think too of, um, I'm doing a lot of work with journaling right now with mm-hmm. elementary school classrooms. And the mm-hmm. idea of journaling, it's not like, um, it's not like, Dear diary journaling, it's yeah. like about learning. So right. you give them an open-ended task, they show their thinking or they articulate their method. And then there's a sometimes a new learning statement and there's always a reflection that goes with it. And like at the start, especially with the really little ones with first, second grade, it's mm-hmm. it's very it's a lot of whole group. It's a lot of teaching them how to do these things. And I'll I'll model it and people will be like, well, how's that personalized? I'm like, well, 
It's not quite <laughs> that personalized yet because I'm just trying to get them. Like they've never done this before, right? Right. And I think that this, both your example of, you know, um, discussion, uh, you didn't say techniques, but discussion. No techniques, with, yeah. Techniques, discussion. yeah. Um, and then my example of journaling, right? Like it speaks to um, a clear vision for teaching and learning within a whole school, right? Because yes. if I'm the fourth grade teacher, that is that really values discussion these discussion techniques right mm -hmm. and it hasn't been done in kindergarten or first or second or third right and it's going to make it really hard for me to get that off the ground in fourth grade because not only am i trying to keep up with the content that i feel like i have to cover but now i have to onboard them to all these discussion techniques which takes two months just to get them ready for it yeah so i'm not actually engaging in this fully until maybe november and even then i'm still gradually releasing yeah. So if a whole school embraces Ugh. something like the discussion techniques or journaling or other learner-driven practices, right, then it actually makes everyone's jobs more sustainable in the long run because yeah. the fourth grade teacher and the third grade teacher are not having to build the, or lift this all off the ground themselves. And so there yes, is that yes. element of like, we all have to have somewhat of a common vision for teaching in the school, not identical, not operating in lockstep. You know, not we can still allow for different flavors in classrooms, but there have to be some universal truths by which everybody abides, you know, and oh that's really gosh. hard to do, really yes. hard to do. But maybe even if they just chose like the journaling and the discussion techniques and say reciprocal teaching and everybody for the year was like, we're going to lean into this work. We're going to get these students ready. Yes. You're still, you still have that first year and we just all need to pause and thank everybody in early elementary for the hard work. They do always onboarding young learners to all of this stuff, because I've spent some time in kinder first, second grade classrooms. And these people are magical like the things that they do like sometimes I think I just want to invite secondary into elementary classrooms and just be like remember this is the intentionality we have to be thinking about when we onboard even older learners to some of this stuff I think sometimes in secondary we kind of forget that that like oh right it's modeling and practicing and onboarding and we can't just throw a strategy at students and think that they're going to be successful so oh my gosh if you could get a school making those kinds of agreements of like here's a strategy of focus this semester we're we're all going to lean in so that next year kids are onboarded and we don't have to, you know, spend two months building that muscle at the beginning of the year. That would be magical. And I tell teachers, the reality is if your students have not been asked to share responsibility for learning or lead their learning or be really self-directed, like just know it is so much more cognitively and socially challenging for students to be students in a student-centered classroom. It is far easier. I don't think it's as fulfilling or rewarding or interesting or engaging, but far easier to be a student in a teacher-centered classroom where the teacher is doing the lion's share of the work. So there's always going to be at the outset some of that discomfort around them realizing, oh, I have to be an active agent in this classroom. I have to really be invested in some of these learning experiences. I had never thought of it that way, that it's actually harder for the kids, but you're totally right. It mm -hmm. totally is. Yeah. yeah. Which I think explains sometimes too why sometimes I, I feel like I have trouble selling some of these things to the historically <laughs> high yeah. kids, you know, oh, yeah. kids because th that way of school has worked for them, mm -hmm. you know, for so long. And it's like, well, why are you asking me to explain the way I'm doing this? Yeah. I know how to do it. I know how to stack the numbers and add or I, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I answered all the multiple choice questions quick, correctly. Why are you bothering me with this? And it's 
it's hard, which I think, again, speaks to why the mindset shift conversation is so necessary. Changing the, or talking, we, we need to change the way we think before we can change what we do, right? And that, I mean, yep, that yep. entails even bringing parents and kids in on, on this. On oh, this absolutely. And one of, the, one of the things I think, too, is I have a daughter who is so academically strong. Like, you could plop her into any learning environment, and she's going to thrive academically, but I think that those high achievers where kind of the status quo just works for them, it works for them, but I don't think it blows the ceiling off of their possibility. Do you know what I mean? Like they're doing enough to get that A, but they're not necessarily being challenged to go beyond and kind of discover what their possibilities are when they're in that traditional setting. That's my concern. Sure, they do good enough. They they thrive academically, but what are they not getting that they might get in a classroom where they drive their own learning and they decide kind of where where the the line they want to work toward is, if that makes sense. Totally. I mean, to me, that's a connection right back to humanity, right? Yes. And it's actually not enriching who they are as human beings. It's just, it's, they're, they're able to sort of step back and, and allow it to be easy because the system, the system, right, mm-hmm. is, is making it, it, the way that they, the way that they learn, the way that they've, been able to operate in school meshes with the system so well that they can just sort of, you know, phone it in. And I, I love, I mean, I love what you just said. It's, it doesn't allow them to, you said, blow the ceiling off of their possibility. possibility yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it should be about, right? I think that's at the heart of equity work is that mm-hmm. every kid is able to reach their fullest potential in the classroom. And that includes kids who finish quickly and already have quote unquote mastered the standards. Like we have to have pathways for them as well so that they can, you know, reach their fullest potential too. So I totally agree. Yeah. Like they could do fine on the project we give them, but like, what could they possibly imagine up if they had to come up with their own project? Those are the the questions I wonder about with that group. I also just think too, as a teacher, it's so fun to be in classrooms where kids are, where kids are that motivated. Like I have a Mm -hmm. student working right now and she's working on she just had her bat mitzvah and she was like, I want to do, and she, they have, you know, Rosh Hashanah is coming up and mm-hmm. she was like, I want to make, I'm going to do a booth at Temple and it's going to be about orbital sustainability. And I need your help oh making, gosh. it's like, I need your help <laughs> making. Um, I know I've learned so much. Like I, I was like, what? I have another student who's writing about soccer players. And I'm like, I got to tell you, bud, I don't know anything about soccer, like, <laughs> but I'm learning so much anyway. But the orbital sustainability one, I'm like, this is so interesting. I had no idea that like there was a ton of trash in the orbit. And this is another sustainability problem that we're dealing with. And so I think when you're in a classroom like that, right, where the kids are driving learning and where, where they are making decisions, it's also way more fun to be a teacher because you're learning too. Oh, my gosh. Totally. so enriching. Right. And it's going to make it's going to energize you like, wow, I'm learning so much about all this stuff as well. It's not just me giving, giving, giving. I'm getting just as much as I'm giving. Oh, my gosh. So much more engaging from our perspective, I think. I feel like I learn stuff from students all the time that I I did not know, which is so exciting. And and it's you also being like modeling. I am the teacher in this room for sure, but we're all learners. I just maybe I'm like the lead learner, but we're all learning in here. And that should be really exciting. Um, Okay, so you make a comment in your book that I absolutely love that is like basically the shift to sustainable teaching itself must be sustainable. And this reminds me of something kind of I say to teachers where, you know, I'll throw a lot at them. But at the end, I'm like, think big, 
get excited, start small. <laughs> so I want to know how you suggest teachers kind of make the shift to sustainable teaching, like the best place to start. Yeah. So um, in the, in the, at the end of the book, I put in a, a goal setting template. And like I said, as we started this conversation, you know, the, the six mindset shifts are really supposed to be a framework within which we start conversations about sustainability. I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim that the book has all the answers for sustainability. Sustainability is personal, right? It's dependent on context, situation, personality, you know, like there's so many factors that go into it. Um, and so what I suggest people do is take stock of current practice within each of the six mindset shifts. And that's what the template does in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. And what I suggest is examining, you know, examining those six mindset shifts, then thinking through what is within my focus of control, which of these things can I change on my own? Which of these things do I need to do in partnership with a coach or an administrator or even a superintendent? And which of these things are currently outside of my control? Mm-hmm. Not to say we give up on the things that are outside of our control, right? We can start conversations about those. We can, you know, we can talk about those, but we really should be focusing on the things that like are within our locus of control or we can do in partnership with someone in our school. And then once you look at those things, I would say, choose the thing that you feel like is going to make the biggest impact mm-hmm. that you can reasonably achieve. So this is where like smart goals come in, right? Mm-hmm. It's, specific, it's measurable. It's somewhat reasonable, right? It's time bound. You can do this over the course of a, of a school year or the course of, or over the course of a semester, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so that's what I would suggest. And it is kind of that idea of start small, but again, what's small for you may not be small for me and vice versa. Right. So right. I think it's about finding that thing that you can reasonably do. And I would say when you first start this work on sustainability is like set yourself a goal that you feel like 95% confident that you can achieve over the course of a quarter or a semester. Yes. Because you want to feel successful in the work, right? I think feeling a sense of mastery. When I say mastery, I don't mean checking a box. I mean that my efforts, I can connect my efforts to the progress that I'm making, right? Because that is, that's, um, it's empowering. It's, it's, um, it's intrinsically motivating to, to know that the efforts I'm making are actually contributing to positive change. Yep. So that's what I would suggest. Use the framework, figure out what's within your locus of control, identify one or two practices that you feel like one you can achieve, but then also make the biggest impact, you know, over the course of that time. And then, you know, and be really specific about it. You know, don't just say like, get better at grading or do less grading, like (laughs) put a really specific practice that you're going to either start or stop. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you get to the end of that timeframe, reevaluate and see, did it actually help, you know, make my job more sustainable? I love that. And I hope everybody heard Paul say start or stop because sometimes it's not about adding to what we do or like taking on something totally new. Sometimes it's actually just like letting go of something that maybe isn't serving us or our students, which I think we don't often think about. I think also too, you could think of it as I actually, in the book, I, I, I use a three, a three part framework that's amplify, alter, activate Mm -hmm. and amplify as one too. Like, is there something you're doing that's actually really working that you want to create more time for That could be a shift you make, you know, like Mm -hmm. if reflect, like I think reflection is a great example all around, right? If reflection is working for you, you know, like once or twice a week, try and do a five minute reflection every day and see how that changes things. Right. Like, I think there's things you can expand that you're already doing. It doesn't have to be always starting from scratch. 
I love that. And I would say if you're measuring progress, maybe if it's something that like is directly impacting students, I am such an advocate for like, ask them, what did they think? So if we did journaling twice a week and you're like, wow, this is really cool. It's working well. Let's move it to five days a week at five minute mark. Did that work better for them? How did they feel about it? So often we make these shifts in practice and don't check in with like the customers in the room. And I think that can lead us sometimes to make changes that maybe aren't as beneficial as we might think they are because we haven't really checked in with the students who are asking to do the things. That's a great point. Totally agree. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could just talk to you for hours, Paul. I'm so <laughs> glad you came back on the podcast. Thank you. I cannot recommend his book highly enough for everybody out there who is feeling that need for a more sustainable approach. So it's making teaching sustainable. Um, I will make sure to include Paul's contact information, a link to the book in the show notes. Um, and again, just thank you so much for your time, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I have so many takeaways from this conversation, so I'm going to try to be concise and focus on two of them. The first is Paul's comment that what makes teaching sustainable for one teacher might not work for another teacher. And so we want to identify what is within our control in terms of where we start in thinking about these mindset shifts. Because I agree with Paul's statement that we want to start with something we feel is doable and is going to have the biggest impact for us and our students. I think over time, as we build on those small wins, that's what makes us really excited to continue pushing and changing and growing as educators. And I also appreciate that Paul is really forthright about these are conversation starters, right? These are mindset shifts we need to examine, but schools and leaders and teachers need to be engaged in a dialogue about these things because there's no solution that is going to work for everyone. So just really appreciate this focus on sustainability in relation to education because we really need to find more sustainable ways to approach this work so we can keep the incredible educators in school that we have and also have students who are more engaged and excited to be at school. If you have any questions or comments, you can find me online at Catlin underscore Tucker on X, formerly Twitter, or at Catlin Tucker on Instagram. And obviously you can search my work on CatlinTucker.com and I will list links in the show notes. So you can explore Paul's work as well. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. 